Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. My special guest today is Dr. Sam Illingworth. Dr. Illingworth is a poet, scientist, who believes that poetry is a powerful tool to communicate and explore science. He is the host of the extremely popular podcast, The Poetry of Science. We're in the process of working out some technical difficulties, and we'll be right back. Be the broad definition of science that be comfortable with. 
All right, very nice. So you've been able to to craft the two together. Tell me about that process. So for me, science is this incredible thing, okay? And I'm a very privileged, you know, I'm a heterosexual male who's had all of the advantages that life could afford him. And I find science to be a very empowering and enabling gift. And it makes me sad that other people don't have the access to that for many different reasons. So for me, my work really is concerned with having to give voice to underserved audiences and to help make science accessible to many people. And poetry is a fabulous medium through which to voices and to introduce science to new audiences. Science communication from dissemination through dialogue and poetry really offers an opportunity to introduce people to new scientific research but it also creates a opportunity through which dialogue can be created. The result of which is scientific discourse can be diversified people can hopefully realize that science and its poetry are both for them and can be done by them as well. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. What are some of the predominant themes of your work, Dr. Illingworth? You talked so about working with the... the... Yes. I'm listening. The thing my work really are trying to poetry to interrogate science and also use poetry to platform different voices. So I have, I do many projects I guess, but one of my projects is my blog, The Poetry of Science, and my company podcast, mm-hmm. The Poetry of Science. And every week I do a piece of new scientific research and then write a poem about it. Not in a didactic way to explain the rather in a way to interrogate the research, reframe it, and introduce it to audiences who might not ordinarily have seen it, not just because it's funny and scary and strange. And the other side of the work that I do is really running poetry workshops and creating opportunities for scientists and non-scientists to speak together to share their experiences, their knowledge, their tacit information, and for those sharing of experiences to lead to um, new scientific discourse and also an improvement for the um, conditions of the people that are engaged in those workshops. Oh, wow, incredible. It sounds like you're doing great work. <laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, I think, <laughs> as it's really evident from your podcast, Michael, of which I'm a big fan, you know, poetry is so important to you, clearly, and to many of the people being on your podcast. And poetry for me is a fundamental of my soul. And I have the privilege to have been introduced to poetry and to have been and welcome into the spoken word community and, and to have that. And I think it's important to 
have access to poetry and that people are shown poetry that is exclusionary. So for me, I would just have to be able to work with people that they can engage with. Unfortunately, I cannot hear anything that you're saying anymore. <laughs> Not at all. Guys, guys are not working with us today, but we're going to make this happen one way or another, even if it means we need to reschedule, because Dr. Illingworth's work is incredible. He reminds me of myself during my early years when I attempted to breach the gap between counseling and, and poetry and uh, how exciting that was. So here we go again with Dr. Illingworth. All right, oh, thank Dr. You, Illingworth. Oh, yes. We'll, we'll keep trying. Like I say again, if we can't make it through today, we're going to reschedule this because what you're doing is, is like I said again, is incredible. I just made this statement that reminded me of myself years ago before I was tenured and promoted to an associate professor. I, too, attempted to breach the gap between counseling and poetry in a non-traditional way, in a field that was not in English. It was in the field of counseling totally. So I get what you're doing, and I like it. Michael, that means a good deal coming from you. Yes, yeah, I really, really, I've been reading about you. I've been reading about you all day long, and, and even before today. <laughs> so please, please share a poem. So. <laughs> okay. So this is a poem. Um, okay, yeah, this is a poem that's called Shadow Losses. So I'll read the poem. I'll say when the poem is finished, and I'll explain a little okay. bit about the context of the poem. I don't have free time. I felt compelled to refrain from complaining about doing schoolwork, about loss of income, about living alone. My loss could be worse. I sometimes feel guilty for even comparing to those who have experienced the death of loved ones. I have to remind myself that my problems are real, my feelings are valid, my pain matter, still trying to give myself the permission and room to grieve its losses. So that's the end of the poem, and that poem is inspired by a recent piece of research which has investigated how you pandemic. This was an amazing piece of research done by some American scientists who asked their graduate students to write about um, their experience, the, the first experiences of loss and grief with COVID-19. And what some of them spoke about the loss of a family member, a lot of them spoke about this thing that are called shadow losses, so this idea of a loss that isn't a, a, it's maybe a loss of a, a connection or the loss of being able to go to a wedding your friends and this research was really amazing because it kind of gave voice to those shadow losses and helps the students to realize that actually it's okay to leave these 
and loss that you're going through is just different to the loss of a family member. So I thought it was pretty amazing research and I just wanted to be able to share it with a wide audience. That particular poem, actually, all of the words came from the participant responses that was in the original research and I just reordered them in a process known as poetic transcription. So it was the voices of those young adults describing how they were affected by shadow losses. When I read that poem earlier today, and actually when you sent it to me, I was really struck by it because I felt like, Michael, this is your story. This is how you feel. Uh, how can you feel? How can you feel anything when there are people who are really suffering? or what I felt was suffering from the pandemic through death, through other kinds of means. So it really struck me. So I appreciated reading it. I really, really did. Thank you, Michael. And I think this one, Shadow Lies, in COVID and beyond is really important because so many of us excuse our feelings and try to denigrate them and make them little, whereas it's very relative and it's okay for us to grieve these losses, and it's okay for us to acknowledge that even though someone hasn't died, we've lost a part of ourselves that we'll never take back. For me, it was really profound research, and it, similarly to you, it spoke to me on a pretty fundamental level. Now, do you think that someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? <laughs> I wow. really want your answer um, on this one because you're in science, which is hard facts. You know, what does emotions have to do with it? Yeah, I, I, that's a really good question. So the, I'll, I'll answer it quite particularly by giving you an answer to a question that you didn't ask. But one of, one of the, the real problems with science is when science is communicated, it actually shouldn't necessarily be objective. Because if I'm talking about, my background's a climate change researcher, if I'm talking about climate change, how can I talk about research without being angry or upset or frustrated or scared? It's when scientists present their work as a, like, cold fact, they put up a bridge between them and society, which basically encourages... Um, all kinds of people to, to kind of go against science and, and, and actually what people should be doing is when they're talking about science to be able to explore their emotions when you're doing the research yeah make sure that it's very objective but when you're talking about it it's okay to be angry or happy or sad or elated and doing so I think really helped fundamentally bridge the gap between science and the wider society to answer your original question I, I think I think for me, being a poet is and it's something that I've stood with myself, call myself a poet, I don't know. But I try to say to everybody who I work with that if you read a poem, you're a poet. Wow. Dr. Ellingworth, do you come from a literary background? And if so, 
What did you learn about writing growing up? So background really has always been very science-based, like through school. Uh, I was always interested in the creative arts. I was obviously in a band and, and wrote songs. And then when I was at university, I was president of my theatre society. But the problem in the United Kingdom is kind of forced down one particular route of education um, from an early age. Kind of pick what majors are going to be in college by like the time you're 40, really. So I was always ushered very much on this science route about um, creative bullets. And I feel really privileged to be in a position now where I'm able to use um, that creativity to help communicate to different audiences. And while I wouldn't profess to be a, like amazingly talented poet, but what I think I do have is an understanding of both the sciences and literature to be able to help break down some of those barriers to entry so that other people who are far more talented than me can flourish and can experience those two worlds for themselves. All right. You know, as we think about your background, what was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Hmm. Wow. Probably an early experience when I learned that poetic language had power um, would be listening to my mum recite poetry. And I guess it was my mum doesn't necessarily she's a very intelligent woman, but she learned some poetry by wrote at school. I'm 37, mum's in her early 60s. And we don't really do that anymore, but just being able to listen to her recite it. you learned when you were 9, 10, 11 to be really powerful there's something in this for them to be learned in such a fashion please share another poem okay I'll read another poem to you so um, let me read this to you so this is a, a Words. Um, I'll read the poem and then I'll explain. So this poem is called Fifteen Pounds in Spring. Dawn breaks with the diminishing sound of forced repeat. A corpse constrained by pear and calendar. Constrained community traces diminuendo of diversity, captured by the accoutrements to forecast future soundscapes stripped clean of tone and pitch and voice the impending silence scored by our distinction of experience so that's the end of the poem and this poem is inspired by recent research which has found that the sounds of spring are actually changing dawn choruses across America and Europe becoming quieter and less varied so there's this really sad um, phenomenon called the extinction experience, which is about the loss of human interactions. And loss of human interactions is really kind of 
catastrophic for two reasons because one it reduces the health and well-being that, that human beings can get from their connection with nature and two by connecting with nature it also means that humans are far less likely to develop policy and take action to help protect biodiversity in nature so for me this was this phenomenal research right the researchers looked at annual bird count data for more than 200,000 sites across the Mecca and Europe from 1996 to 2018 and combined them with an online database of and just found that the diversity sounds in spring have changed and it's interesting and I find to be really sad and that we completely lost this soundscape and hope we can get it back Let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. I'm here with Dr. Sam Illingworth. back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Dr. Sam Illingworth, the amazing Dr. Sam Illingworth. Let me ask you, does writing energize or exhaust you? Uh, it massively energizes me. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, write like a, I write at least a poem every week. Um, I write, oh, wow. Michael, I tend to write, I tend to write in chat. Um, so part of the reason because about the internet is because really remotely, which is amazing. And I go for walk and write poetry and that reconnection in contrast to the previous topic we were discussing is really valuable for me and yeah, I get a I think that it is something I've been to do, and I 
something which I feel incredibly um, privileged to be able to call myself. Wow, very nice. Very, very nice. Please share another poll. Okay. My call is called Volcanic Seas, so I'll read it and then I'll explain it again. Four seas break your skin. Fabricated fractures feeding flare-up with deferred certainties that linger in the tough. Wearing wealth like a crown, you probably pronounce the word wounds of every your past, we scour through scars with met respect, bearing them as witness against the rising tides. A sunken circle, mark, cracked echo of history. So at the end of the poem, and this poem is inspired by research which has found that sea levels the Greek island Santorini. So what was basically found was that all the um, sea levels uh, like, are changing. As the sea levels change, it actually affects the way in which volcanoes can erupt. So rising sea levels in this particular instance in the ancient island, sinking sea levels cause it to erupt more. I just think this is a kind of beautiful dance and synergy of the earth in motion, almost logical breath, if you will, of the oceans going in and out and the volcanoes responding in turn. Yeah, so pretty cool research. Who else is doing this, Dr. Hillingworth? <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> Um, Have you cornered the market in terms of what you're doing? I mean, are, are there other colleagues out there, like going like, yes, <laughs> let's do this? Well, <laughs> I want to know. I hope so, Mark. No, I hope so. Honestly, um, one of the things that I wanted to do, I love. I've done my blog for about six years. Okay. A couple of years. I love doing. I love doing it. But I also thinking to myself really sustainable like it's only one person so I set up a couple of years ago uh, the poetry and science journal Consilience which yes. creates a space for people to publish poetry related to science um, and Michael like it's one of the proud things I've ever done like so as well as publishing the work of about 100, 100 odd poets we also have a volunteering team on the consensus board of 76 members from six continents and 12 countries um, and all these people are passionate about the intersection of science and poetry and just helping to establish a community and dare I say movement in using poetry to help diversify science and to really just explore the idea poetry and science and not mutually exclusive entities but other complementary pieces of the same jigsaw tell me about your book a sonnet to science i found that fascinating as well okay so um a sonnet to science is a book i wrote a couple of years ago which looks at the life and work of six well-known scientists and 
the role that poetry played in research and life. So people like Harvey Davy, people like Ada Lovelace, the people we've heard of, but then also people like Ronald Ross, who are the person who discovered the link between malaria and mosquitoes and won a Nobel Prize for it. He actually recorded, the, when, he, when he made that link, he didn't write it down in the scientific article, Michael. The first thing he wrote was a to record link, which I found to be astounding. Um, mm-hmm. Also, people like Rebecca Epson and Miroslav Olub, who are um, more modern, but Rebecca Elson's work in particular, I find to be very important. She was one of the first people to work on the Hubble-based telescope and wrote poetry that explored uh, space, but space at an incredible scale from the cells in our body to the um, multiple galaxies that exist. So in writing that book, what I really found was that poetry for all of these scientists offered a way for them to make sense of the world that had to complement the scientific study. And I'm not saying that they wouldn't have been able to do their scientific research without poetry. What I am saying is that poetry was a vital part of their lives that had to make them the people that they were. Yeah, I, I'm just amazed. <laughs> I'm just amazed. I, I'm really glad you're with me today. Please share another poem. Okay, Carl, I'll share another one with you. It's such a pleasure to be able to read my poems um, like this as well. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm just going to read a poem to you now. I think it's, I'm going to be a bit more positive, Michael. So I'll read the poem and then I'll explain it. This is called Majestic Migration. Cloud colour sail on ocean winds, dancing in dunes like punished memories of distant verdant lands, flying, dying, flying, dying. Promise of return passed on through generations, whispered reveries amongst rosy orange mists of elongated time. So that's the end of the poem. And this poem is inspired by research, which is really cool. This is that the painted lady butterflies actually achieved the longest known insect migration from the Sahara Desert all the way to Europe. But they do it as like as they, as they're migrating, they they mate and they give birth. So that the ones that are off in the Sahara Desert are not the same butterflies that end up in Europe. They've passed on the genetic memory to their offspring, which I just found to be incredible. Mm. You know, it's funny. I do have one more question about a sonnet to science. If you were asked to, if you had to convince a friend or colleague to read that particular book, what would you tell them? Oh, well, I'm British, Michael, so very self-effacing in my own work, but if I was trying to convince them to read the book what I would do is I'd say this book as demonstration that human beings are not readily put in pigeons for other people we are not poets we are not scientists we are not dancers, we are not artists we are not builders, we are not doctors we are not 
purposes. We are human beings with an infinite potential to shape the world around us. Wow. <laughs> that was truly nicely stated. I like that. <laughs> I like that. You know, you speak, speak so distinctively. What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Oh, Michael, such a, you're asking really insightful questions that are really important to me as well. So for me... <laughs> I'm glad. That when I'm doing basic poetry workshops with people, I always give them poems and ask them to read them in their head and then to read them out loud and to hear other people read them out loud because they sound completely different. And to me, there's a cadence in the way that you read poetry. Um, I, I love reading poetry. I love being a spoken word artist. But I think that it's okay when you write a poem for that poem to function as a written piece. It's okay when you write a poem for that poem to function as a spoken piece. And it's okay to function as both or indeed neither. But like personally when I come, when I write poetry, I'm normally writing it to be read by somebody else. Um, and I don't specifically write some poetry, but rather the way in which I perform slash poetry, um, I'd use the same words, but maybe alter my cadence or um, the way in which it was delivered. You could be my twin uh, <laughs> because I feel the exact same way. Wow. Wow. This is, this is too much for me today. All right. All right. All great writers have great writing influences. Who are some of yours, and what makes them special in your eyes? Okay, it's a really good question. Um, Michael, can I be honest and tell you that my ch- mine changed quite a lot. Um, somebody who's probably had the most profound impact on me recently is Claudia Rankine. Um When I read um, Citizen and American Lyric, it blew my mind. Uh, it it kind of showed me what poetry can achieve, and it reminded me of the Shelley quote where he talks about poetry being a mirror that you hold up to society, right? And what Claudia shows us in her work is that actually that mirror, sometimes when we look at that reflection, not a precise, but we need to look poetry has an amazing ability to make us look and make us question why things are the same that they are and so her work more than any others and that piece in particular I found to be incredibly aspirational and is something I would aspire to be able to write one of the sentences in that book <laughs> You know, your poems have really detailed titles. What role should a title play in a poem? Uh, Michael, I used to find writing titles really hard, and I got a really cool piece of advice from a fellow poet. And he told me, title means 
tell you something that the poem does not. And the way I interpret that is, if my poem's very literal, I'll make the title quite metaphorical. If my poem's very metaphorical, I'll make the title quite literal. So I try to, I used to always do that. If you know, the first line would be the title of the poem or the last line would be. But now I try the title to offer something different to the reader because of that great advice I got. Oh, very nice, very nice. Poets hail from all over the world. <laughs> Where do you hail from, and how has that experience shaped your writing? Okay, so I'm a British, as you can tell, and I'm yes. from the north of England. So I'm a very, uh, <laughs> I'm very traditionally the north of England would be seen as being more working class and less severe than the south of England. I'm from a posh class town in the north of England, Tarrogate. So I'm actually very, very oxymoronic. Um, I've Sorry. lived and worked. I've lived and worked all over the world, um, from Japan through. To America, through to, to Australia, to, I believe too, to, right? Australia, to Australia as well, right? and like even though I can't speak another language fluently, I think living in those different cultures what it's shown me is that the words of the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein hold so true. Those words are that the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And I don't just mean the language that you speak, I mean cultural language, everything. And for me, being able to live in different communities and with different people, different cultures, has had a profound influence on, on who I am, on acknowledging my own place, acknowledging my own privilege, and acknowledging the potential that I can have to hopefully be for a good world as well. You know, it's funny. There's so much, maybe it's not funny, it's not funny, but there's so much happening in this world. And you talked about different people, different cultures. You talked about climate change. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Mm. I think it's a little bit like I was talking earlier, Michael. It's about holding up a mirror to society and making us look even if we don't want to look. And it's, mm. it, it's about... It's about helping, for me as well, I think it's about helping people, especially those who've been denied a voice, to find a voice. And for the people who don't have a voice, it's to use their words to help find that voice. And I think that's what poetry can do and should do. Wow. But does it do it, Dr. Illingworth? Does it do it? Tell me. I want to know. I have an inquiring <laughs> mind. Does it do it? I think it depends on the poet, Michael. I think there's some... Okay. Amazing, amazing people out there doing some incredible work. And I'm not saying they have to be civil activists leading workshops because they could just be a person in home that gives voice to those contexts. Um, I think that poets have the capacity to do that, um, providing, of course, that it moves to the people gazing exclusively instead. Um, dots a, a direction in which all voices are welcome. All right. Please 
share another poem. Okay, let me share another poem with you. Um, so, okay, cool. So this poem, um, I'll read the poem and I'll explain the research. So this poem is called A Bright Map of Stone. In Barmbeth, your chiselled contours lay dormant in another's chamber. Rivulets in rock congealed with dampened soil until we break you free and into pieces. Running wrinkled fingers along their channels scry for secrets between your boundaries. Trading burials as we leave you to rest beneath the edges of your distant kingdom. Wordlessly you call to us triumphant topographies proclaiming all that you once were. Proud motifs mark a faith now lost amongst the landscape you no longer are. So that's the end of the poem and, and the poems by research which recently found a 4,000 year old stone lab which is thought to be Europe's oldest map. It's, it was just found in like a boat in a castle and this area in like the, the western front in Brittany and it's just this beautiful like reading map of the area and I just thought it was incredible and like a beautiful connection to our past. Wow. I'm really enjoying talking to you. I really, really am. I wish well, I'd met you Michael. prior to my retirement because I love working with individuals who work in interdisciplinary ways. Uh, oh, oh. Well, well, let's Michael, take a brief we can, break and we'll be right back. You going to say something? I was just going to say we can still work with retirement. Michael, you're working. We can collaborate together. (laughs) All right, all right. I like that. We'll be right back. Science and their disconnect with it, 
But I think the work that emerges from my work is that these communities are important, not only because uh, it's important ethically that we give them voice, but also because science is a series of global interdisciplinary problems, and the only way we'll solve them is not in a bunch of people that like to talk about it, but in a group of diverse backgrounds bringing their lived experience to solve them. And I hope that I do demonstrate others that these are the communities we should be engaging with in order to diversify and make more effective our attitude towards scientific discourse. Now, let's say they're teaching a workshop, and I've taught many in my time. How long does it take you to win them over with your concept? <laughs> well, Michael, it really depends on the work, right? You must know that. So, <laughs> I remember, I, so, uh, I went an English man, um, Michael, and rescued a flamboyant And I am going into Scottish, and Scottish, there's a lot history between Scotland and, and I was got prison and I was asked to run a three hour workshop on writing poems about science I turned up my role in um, salmon trousers, white wing cuppers and a burgundy bow tie um, <laughs> I know and, you like your bow tie <laughs> oh, yeah. you like your bow tie <laughs> I like my bow tie and, and do you know what they uh, Thing. And like for me, audience in particular, that's an audience who's been denied opportunities and, and, and just any engagement is, is useful to them. But at the same time, that audience very much sees through falsities. So I think be true to yourself and to your audience and listen, listening to their needs. I always think, Michael, you should ask people's needs rather than assume what they want. And I think doing that is a really effective way. People sometimes must not like my workshop, but what I always tend to do is say at the start, look, if we do something we don't like, we change it. It is for you, not for just me. And I think I'm experienced enough facilitated to be able to react to things to fly uh, and to listen to my audience's needs rather than just treat them as an, you know, a singularity. All right. You know, it's funny. I walked into many forums where I felt initially that the audience chuckled at me as I talked about my beliefs. But as we continued our journey together, they chuckled with me as we processed and we grew and we developed together. So I do understand. I do understand. It takes a minute. It takes a minute. You know, when you think about writing a poem, and you've written many, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature once it's out there, there's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on it, Sam? Mm. Definitely of the former, Michael. And like, for me as well, especially with the work I do on poetic transcription, Michael, like, that's just an interpretation. Like, I would love people to take those poems and to make their own, to adapt them, to change them, to give me feedback, to use it themselves, you know, like how do they want to use it, even if it's, <laughs> I don't know, to stream that with profanities, that's cool, like, 
the words that I've made and that I've shared and that people can do with what they want. And for me, I don't think there's such thing as a finished poem. There's just a moment in time in which that poem exists before it moves on to the next one. Mm. We have time for a few more poems. Please favor us again. Okay, Michael. So this poem's called Wailing Away. In the name of progress, we pour your honey liquor down the jacked throats of our quenchable machines. Launch broken vessels coax you from the depths of your unnumbered slumber. Surrounded by our wooden belts, you congregate in immensity, striking the surface with frenzied flukes to tear waves from their moorings. A futile display of decay paints rounded targets for war-blooded killers rise from the spray. Blooded, bruised, broken, you flee from Kubris to the undying night of the ocean's floor, seeking comfort, you see faded fardor, mourning your loss, for others to learn. So that's the end of the poem, and this poem was inspired by the most incredible research, which found that sperm whales actually shared behaviours to outmaneuver 19th century human hunters. So sperm whales learned how to evade humans with harpoons, and they taught this behaviour to other sperm whales so they could learn the same thing, which I found to be incredible. Like, not only the fact that it happened, but we were able to work out that this happened as well. Wow. <laughs> sperm whales. Wow. It sounds like you never suffer to find topics. Oh, my honestly, so much. Like this is what I love about science then call and like what I want other people to love that it's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. And it it's beautiful and it's bold and it's brilliant and it's terrifying and it's hilarious and just I would love people to have poetry in their lives. I really want people to have science in their lives as well because it's, yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Very nice. Share another, please. Okay. So, um, okay. So this, this song, um, poem, sorry, is, um, is called Ancient Shell Sounds. Abandoned at the mouth of your shelter, you quivered apprehensive at our approach. Crying out to be held, we proclaimed the exception of your discovery. Sighing wearily as we consigned you to the dusty silence of our archives. But now, when I hold you in my hands, I see the face of your purpose speckled complexion. When I lift you to my ear, I hear the sound of an ancient sea lapping at your shores. When I place you on my lips, I feel the heartbeat of your creator pulsing to my breath. I close my eyes as you call out to all that you have lost. And that's the end of the poem. And the poem is inspired by recent research which discovered a large seashell that had sat in the French Museum for decades. And, and people weren't entirely sure what it was. Turns out it was a musical instrument used around 18,000 years ago. 
um, but in, in the um, in, in the French Pyrenees. I love the idea that there's this seashell that people thought, oh, that looks nice. And it turned out that it was this incredibly important um, instrument for like rituals. And my, the cool thing about this is, right, these researchers, they they hired a professional horn player and they put a piece, a horn piece in the end of the shell and he blew and made music there. So they were able to create the same music that would have been had by our ancestors almost 20,000 years ago, which I just find to be astounding. Wow. Tell me about your podcast. Thanks, Michael. So, yeah, I have a podcast called The Poetry of Science, and every week I write a poem about science research, some of those examples I've heard, and then I read a poem and give an explanation the science and then I read the poem again to hope you basically I think when you're making have an additional context can just can help so I do that and then I also try to read a poem by another poet on a similar topic to explore. I love doing that because it, it expands my poetic knowledge and also hopefully demonstrate to people that poetry comes in all shapes and matters and is a really wide church that is absolutely for everybody. So you can check out my podcast, Poetry of Science, which comes out every Monday. It's available at all podcast entries. The short episodes, Michael, they're only about seven, eight minutes. Uh, I'd love for people to listen to it and follow my work and to get in touch if anything that I've said has resonated. Yes. How long have you been on the air? Uh, we've been there about. I've been there with the Poetry of Science for about two years now. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. Wow, <laughs> you are an amazing man, Dr. Ellingworth. Uh, thanks, Michael. That's very kind of you to say so. <laughs> well, it's true. What have you learned about yourself being a poet scientist? Um, what have you learned about yourself? I think. Yeah, that's a pretty good question. I think I've learned my limitations, Michael. Like, I think growing up, I always thought I was going to be kind of a Nobel Prize scientist, and I don't think that would be the case. And I thought I was going to be um, a Hollywood actor, and I think that's going to be the case. But what I do have is I get to do a job where I have my two things that I love in life, as well as my family and God, like combined into practice and I feel very blessed to be able to do that I think that in acknowledging my own limitations I also know that something I am very good at is facilitating the work of others and helping to use my voice um, to help others with theirs and I think that in poetry and science there's space there's, there's a for that, Michael, and I feel grateful that I've been able to contribute towards that way. Wow, very nice. What is next for you creatively? Uh, so, creatively for me, Michael, next, um, I, I would love to. Um, I would love to eventually have a manuscript published. Um, I mean, I have my blog, and my blog is read by you know tens of thousands of people a year, which is amazing. But part of me would still like them. I've got like a chat book and you know, 
po po poems and anthologies and things, but I'd like a proper collection. But I think that's probably me being vain. Called, like, I think I need one. <laughs> <laughs> We've almost come to the end of our journey, but I'd like you to read one last poem before we go, if that's okay. Of course, Michael. So I'm just going to read a song to you, to you now, and this is called Psychic Songs. Um, just actually, I'll give you the context first. So this is basically about new research, which has discovered how whale song echoes can actually be used to map the ocean floor. So we listen to the echoes of whale songs, and we use this to create a visual map of what lies beneath us. This is called Seismic Songs. An accidental echo of the line oscillates with the baritone of a misplaced song. Waves beneath waves, verse wires crossed with the rising conductors from baton. The reflected signals of your chorus reverberate throughout the deep, exchanging tones with every passing crescendo. As your harmony silence our ordinance with a resonance. And that's the end of the poem, Michael. Thank you. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had an opportunity today, <laughs> or this evening, to hear from the brilliant Dr. Sam Illingworth. I want to thank you so much, sir, for spending time with me. Uh, I'm so glad we've made this connection. I wish me you too, nothing but Michael. the best. And I champion thank all you. that you do. <laughs> thank right? you so much, Michael. Yes. Well, to our listening audience, I say thank you, as usual. I wish you well. And as I share every week, let poetry ring. Good night, good morning, wherever you are. Take care of yourselves. All right. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.